James chapter 2, and uh, we've been talking about uh, really a lot of the book is about trials. And so joy and growth and wisdom through trials, trials of poverty, trials of wealth, sin, anger. But then also what pure religion looks like, someone who is a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And then he gives us this example in the book of James of people who show favoritism and, and that that is inconsistent with your faith. And so that's the context that we just left uh, last week. Uh, he talked about that. And so we're kind of continuing that or transitioning from that to a topic today about restraint. So I've heard this quote before from, I don't remember who, but it's been called the definition of civilization to show restraint. And what this really means is you can't even have a civilization if we don't restrain some things about ourselves that I can't just do anything that I want to do. Now, this is quite contrary to what you would hear in the world today, where oftentimes people just say, well, if I feel this way, I have to behave this way. And in a world where people don't restrain any impulses, any desires, where we just are completely unrestrained, it's a devastating world. Uh, one of the early speakers of the house in America, a guy named Robert Winthrop, he famously said, men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled, either be a, by a power within them or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or the bayonet. It's a recognition that you can't even have a civilization if there's no restraint. So I want to begin today by just asking, what restrains you? What restrains you, if anything? What, what restrains the impulses and desires? Now, not to say you have to control every impulse, every desire, but we must control some of them just to have a civilization, let alone to be a Christian. So what restrains you? Now, I, as I was researching this, I just thought of this example. I'd watched a documentary uh, this year, and it just popped in my mind. According to History.com, the deadliest non-hurricane flood in America, American history happened on May 31st, 1889, when an entire lake flooded into Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I think they'll have a picture of it up on screen. The lake had been artificially created by a man-made dam so that a recreation area could be enjoyed for fishing and other outdoor activities. Now, it seems that the owners of the dam, which was the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, that they had lowered the dam by one to three feet, depending on the studies and, and the claims, for their own recreational purposes, which, among other things, it decreased the dam's ability to discharge stormwaters by half. So on May 28, 1889, a storm began, and in 24 hours, six to ten inches of rain poured down. The dam burst, sending a 30 to 40-foot wall of water toward Johnstown, Massachusetts, which equated to 16 million tons of water. According to the Johnstown Heritage, uh, Area Heritage Association and History.com, 2,209 people died that day, almost 400 of them children. Among the dead were 99 entire families. There was 17 million in damage, which is more than $4.4 billion today, and included 1,600 obliterated homes and four square miles of complete destruction. When things that need to be restrained are unrestrained, it can be devastating. The same thing for us. When things that need to be restrained are unrestrained, it can be devastating. We've seen this. We've seen this in homes. 
families. We've seen it in society. When people are unrestrained, when there is nothing that holds back the impulses, the desires, when there is nothing, nothing that harnesses those things, it could be devastating. So what about you? What restrains you? How has God sought to restrain our desires, to restrain a desire for power, passions, impulses, things that, if unrestrained, can be devastating? Now, in the book of James, he's talked about sin and anger. He's talked about disobeying the word, uncontrolled speech, selfishness, a desire to show favoritism. Those are some examples from the word of God, but, but we know that there's many more desires and impulses that we have that sometimes go unrestrained. So we pick up our text in James chapter 2, and if you'll look at verse 8 with me, please. James chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now remember, he's continuing this discussion on favoritism. So he says, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So why a royal law? Why does he call this a royal law? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but he had just said in verse 5, if you look at verse 5 quickly, it says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised? So why a royal law? Well, I believe that love or the royal law, this is the law that people who are heirs of the kingdom live by. So the first point in your notes is this, love should restrain us. Love should restrain us. Now, I, had a, I mentioned this when uh, I talked about uh, the wave, and um, I think some people were interested in doing the, the wave during a sermon, like at a Cardinals game, and um, I, I'll just take notes and just see who does it. But. <laughs> so when I went to two different baseball games uh, this, this past year, uh, at one of the games, they were giving away free hats. And what was interesting to me is that when they were giving away free hats, they said essentially like only people 18 and older. It was something, I don't remember the exact cutoff, but essentially I could get a hat, my kids couldn't. Now how does that work out? <laughs> if you go to a game and you get something that a kid wants like here, it's only for adults, what do you think the first thing that your kid says? Can I have that, right? So, of course, uh, you know, I was like, oh, wait, there's only enough for adults and all these little people with me, they don't get one, and you're handing me this thinking that I'll actually get it? Okay, uh, don't know who planned that, but, but so, so I take, take this hat in my hand, and immediately one of my kids says, can I have that? Now, I didn't, I didn't really care about the hat. However, what if I had? What if I had really wanted this hat, and my child had said, can I have that? What would compel a father to give their child something that the person wanted? Love, right? It's just love. It's saying that I love you more than this thing, and you, a kid I care about, I want to give you this thing. Love constrains us. When it says, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Love is a restraint. Love is something that stops us from just doing anything that we would ever want to do. Because we may have some desires that go against someone else. So love restrains us. It restrains us in at least four ways. So you don't have a space for this necessarily on your notes. But I'm going to give you four just kind of sub points about how love restrains us. First, love restrains us because 
God commands us to love. So you see this all throughout Scripture, and I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 10, verse 15, verse 18. And this is a passage that greatly parallels the book of James. If you're one of the people that are, are taking up my challenge to read through the book of James numerous times, read Leviticus 19 as well and just see how many commonalities you see in there. So Leviticus 19 verse 10 says this, Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor. And the resident alien, I am the Lord your God. That matches very well what he says in chapter 1. And James says in chapter 1. Verse 15 says this. Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. So don't show favoritism. Matches up with James. Verse 18 says this. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community. But love your neighbor as yourself, and then he gives us a reason why there. I am the Lord. When we think about why love ought to constrain us, we have to begin with this, that God has commanded us to love. I don't always feel like loving someone, but I'm called to. I am commanded to, and the reason given is I am the Lord. That's what he says to us is, here's the reason why I command you this, I am the Lord. If you are a Christian here today, you may not always find people lovable, but God commands you to love people. That doesn't mean I agree with them. That doesn't mean I endorse everything they do, but I do have to care about them. The second way that love restrains is because love fulfills the command. So this command that I just talked about from Leviticus, and it's all throughout the Bible, love actually fulfills the command, all these commands about how we're supposed to treat people all throughout Scripture, love fulfills all these commands. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40 says this. He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. All the commands of Scripture... Hang on these two laws, to love God and to love people. So I am to obey the command to love, but then when I even think of any of the other commands, all the moral laws that God has ever given to man, all these things are fulfilled if I love God and if I love people. And third, love restrains us because love is part of our transformation. Now this verse uh, I'm going to have a few extra verses. I had a little more, uh, I don't know why during Journey to Bethlehem week, but I had a little more time where I studied this week, so I added a lot of verses that I didn't tell our AV team about, so I'm just going to tell you about it. When I, when I have too much time with the sermon, it gets pretty big, so I apologize for that. So, love restrains us because love is part of our transformation. Romans 5.5, 5, the second half of it says, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, if a person here today is not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you yet. I hope it does one day. But to a Christian, not only do we have a command and lots of moral commands in Scripture, not only does love fulfill all these commands, because if I love God and love people, then I'll treat them in a way that fulfills the commands. But also, there's been a transformation that should take place and continue to take place because when I trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes inside of me, and the Holy Spirit... It says, it pours out love in me. So this ought to be a test as well, that if I just 
have a, an extreme difficulty ever feeling restrained by love, if I, just, if I just hate people or don't like people, don't care about them at all, then is the love of God in your heart. Fourth, love restrains us because love is our example. In 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. So love should restrain us. A command to love, a transformation of love, an example and debt to love should all transform the way we treat others. Does it restrain you? Sometimes we just want to say what we think or, or do things to lash out at people. There ought to be a pause in our heart because of love. That sometimes the impulses that I have, the desires that I have, the things I want to say, the things that I want to do, I ought to have a pause when they act against another person because I ought to have the love of Christ in me and the love of Christ ought to restrain the things that I do. It goes on to verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me, please. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So we have this parallel that love, you'll do well if you love. But if, however, this contrasting word, you show favoritism, because favoritism is the overall topic, although he's kind of transitioning to anything, but, but that's still the thing he's been talking about is favoritism. So even this, this thing that we might think is small, showing a little favoritism to someone, he says, if, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the second point on your notes is the law should restrain us. The law should restrain us. So how should the law restrain you? Uh, I've mentioned before from this pulpit that uh, my wife and my daughter at one time conspired against me to get another dog. We already had one dog, and I was fine uh, with having one dog, but now we have two dogs. And uh, this dog is a husky. And if you don't know much about husky, uh, you know, they have a bunch of wonderful characteristics. For instance, they shed all the time, <laughs> just all the time. They also just are incredibly stubborn. And maybe if you're a person who's a really good like dog training person that you could get them to do all sorts of things. I'm not that kind of person. I don't know how to train a dog. And so all I have then is a stubborn dog <laughs> that sheds all the time. So, so at my last house, before I moved here, you know, she may be stubborn, but she likes the cold. So during the winter, she just kind of goes and likes to lay outside. It could be snowing and we're just like, come on in, it's snowing. She just like stares at you like, I'm a husky. Like, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Come back when it's summer, I may come inside and lay on an air conditioner vent for you. <laughs> so we move here, though, and we don't have a fence because, of course, in Lincoln County, one of the main things to know about people is, do you have land? Well, um, you know, I have two-thirds of an acre, which from where I came from, that's a lot of land. <laughs> so I don't feel I'm a little too cheap to fence in all of that. So we tried one of those uh, invisible collars, right? The kind that give them a little shock as you're trying to train them. Well, we, we put that thing on her and, and uh, turned it like halfway up because we thought she is stubborn. She probably needs a, a good jolt. She just blew right through that thing. <laughs> Man, we chased her a half mile and, and couldn't catch her, got in our cars, ran after her, couldn't get her. Eventually she did come back. I think she does know who feeds her, but, but man, never seen her look so happy. Just like, I'm running away. You can't catch me. Nothing you can do about it. So we turned up a little more. And once she finally came back, turned up a little more, blew through it, just kept doing this. We kept having to chase down this dog that my wife and my daughter tricked me, manipulated me into getting. 
have to keep chasing this thing down. And so, so finally, we turned all the way up. And then we got the long hair barbs, and we're like, if this doesn't work, I don't know what we're going to do. We're just like, <laughs> I, I don't know what I can do with this dog. So she runs to the barrier, just ready to bolt out again, and gives a yelp for the first time. Beforehand, she acted like she never even felt it. Like, are you sure this thing works? Because I feel like it's just freedom. And so she runs toward, gives a yelp, and runs back, and she hasn't crossed it since. <laughs> Thank you all. I appreciate you sharing in my journey of difficulty. So now she approaches that barrier, even sometimes, because we have another dog who we do trust, and we'll be able to throw a ball beyond the, the invisible barrier. She'll go get it, but this husky will stop. Now, why? She hasn't been shocked, but it's a warning. The collar on her is a warning. She doesn't need it anymore, right? We have occasionally accidentally put her out without it, and she just knows this barrier I cannot go past because that one shock was the warning that she needed. How does the law restrain us? When this says, if, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are, in, uh, are convicted by the law as a transgressor, what is the purpose of the law? How does the law restrain us? So this, again, I have three sub points that aren't on your notes. I told you I expanded the sermon, gave me too much time this week. First one is the law warns us of danger. Not in your notes is Romans 1.19. You can write that down, Romans 1.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. This is, I've just always pictured this in my mind about all the excuses that sometimes we make for the reasons that we do things. And there's this moment where someone who is guilty before God will come and bring their excuses and God will say, here is my law. And it, it gives this imagery when it says that every mouth may be shut. It's like, stop the excuses. We're guilty. It warns us of danger. The second one is the law shows where we really stand. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 22 have a, a big section. I'll just uh, read a few of those. So Galatians 3, verse 19, verse 22 are the two I'll read from. Verse 19 says this, Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgression or sin. Okay, the law came in because of sin. Sometimes we think of the law being the thing that makes us sinners, but, but there was already sin, but the law came in because of sin. Verse 22, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. So let me translate that. The law's purpose is to show that we're guilty before God and in need of Jesus. The law shows where we really stand. God's law that if I look at it, and as the chapter before this says, it calls it looking into the perfect law of liberty. As I look into it, as I see myself and say, how, how do I look? Where do I stand? It says I'm guilty before God and in need of a Savior. I'm guilty before God and cannot do anything to earn my salvation, my forgiveness. I can't do anything. I need Jesus. And the third way that the law restrains us is the law brings personal conviction. Part of this argument in the book of Romans, Romans 1, 2, and 3, uh, which we'll go through someday, but the, chapter 2 has this really interesting thing that kind of describes the, 
the non-religious man. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says this. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. You see, a person doesn't have to know the whole Old Testament or the New Testament to know that they're guilty. Sometimes when I'm talking to people about salvation, and especially as I go through uh, Romans 3.23, and I say, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if I mention that, let's say someone doesn't accept, accept God's standard. So when it says, fallen short of the glory of God, God's standard, if someone doesn't accept that, well, I just say, well, have you ever done anything that violates your own standard? Have you ever done anything where you just thought, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. That was pretty messed up. Most people say, yeah, okay, well, there's a holy God. And his standard is greater than yours. And that holy God not only gave us the word of God as the law, but he also wrote a law on our hearts that our own consciences convict us of guilt. The law should restrain us. Look at these next verses in uh, chapter 2 of James. Look at verse 10. He starts off verse 10 and 11 with one of my favorite words, the Greek word gar, it assigns a reason for the thing he just said. So he says, if you commit favoritism, then you're a transgressor. Verse 10, well, why? For, or I say this because, whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So even something that we may think is just simple and small like favoritism, you say, if I break that, I'm, I'm guilty? You're saying that if I break that, I'm like a, a murderer or, or someone who does something terrible. That's what it says. Whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Well, that doesn't seem fair. How could you say that? Verse 11, that's why that word for is so important. I say this because, or for, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a law breaker. You see, the measurement that matters is only the measurement of guilt. It is not, well, I was less guilty than someone else. It is, I am either innocent or guilty. And no one except for Jesus Christ is innocent. The law is a warning. The law should restrain us. Because if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it ought to tell you exactly where you stand before a holy God. You stand guilty before him, and he wants to save you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To the save, it ought to help us live for Christ. It ought, ought to let us know that, that God expects us to pursue him, to restrain the impulses that are unholy. He offers forgiveness when we mess up, but we ought to want to live for him. So love should restrain us, and the law should restrain us. Now look at verse 12. It says, speak and act. So now he's broadening this, right? It was favoritism, and now he's going very general to almost anything we could say or do. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom or the law of liberty. Liberty, this is the third point in your notes, liberty should restrain us. Now what is the law of freedom, and how could it restrain us? Because it sounds the opposite. The idea of freedom restraining us, that doesn't sound right. It sounds like, well, no, I'm free. I ought to be able to do whatever I want. 
As I was researching this, I, I just looked up the recidivism rate, meaning how often when people are in prison, how often they go back. Well, I found this study. You can find lots of studies out there. But the Department of Justice published a study in 2021 of statistics for people who were released from prison in 2008. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to study the next 10 years. What happened to those people in 2008? What happened over the next 10 years? What was their recidivism rate? 82% of them were arrested again. 82%. It tells us something about our misunderstanding of freedom. Our misunderstanding of, of gaining liberty, especially liberty in Christ. That sometimes we would say, well, I am free in Christ, and so I should do whatever I want. I should be able to do whatever I want. The Bible speaks many times against that, but sometimes we still have that inside ourselves that we'd say, well, I am in Christ, so I should be able to live unrestrained. And Scripture says otherwise. So when I see John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. Well, what does that mean? The plea of the law of liberty is that if you have been set free through Jesus, use it for good. Use it for God's glory. We're not free so that we can go living again like someone who is shackled and in the bondage of sin. We are set free so we can live for the Lord. Galatians chapter 6, verses 13 and 14 says this, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Now, I love this. I love how there's so much symmetry in Scripture, including Paul wrote Galatians, James wrote the book of James, and yet you see this when he says, use this, don't use this freedom as an opportunity of the flesh, but serve one another through love. Now, look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. You see what the law of liberty is supposed to do? We are released and free from sin, the consequences of sin. We are free from the authority of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. And so I ought to live as someone who has been liberated from the enemy, not someone who goes back to the enemy and says, you can be my master again, even though I've said I follow Jesus. The law of liberty ought to restrain us because we know what we came from, and therefore we should know who we serve. The law of liberty should restrain us. And now let's look at verse 13. He says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now how does this fit with salvation? Because when it says, For judgment without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy, uh, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A little of that can make it look like if I don't show mercy, then I'm, does that mean I'm just going to incur God's judgment. What I would say is this, is this is kind of a warning, just like when he talked about the law. It's certainly that because he's talking about judgment, but it's also an assessment. It's assess an assessment of a believer to the person who would say, I'm just that way. And maybe when you say, I'm, I'm just that way, meaning you have this particular sin or you have an unrestrained tongue or actions or anger, that I'm just that way. God would have us assess ourselves. And specifically in this context, when he's talking about favoritism, he wants Christians to show mercy. And so that's why he can say in something like Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Because if I'm a child of God, I ought to be transformed in a way that gives me a heart of great mercy. 
Not that I'll be perfect, but I ought to be convicted when I don't show mercy. 1 John 3.17 says this, If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? It's an assessment. If I don't have mercy, then do I have Christ? And if I don't have Christ, then I have judgment to look forward to. Now, I'm not saying you're going to walk this line perfectly, but there ought to be a conviction in the heart of a believer. We ought to be restrained by love. We ought to be restrained by the law as a warning and as a standard by which God wants us to live. We ought to be restrained by freedom to know that we have liberty in Christ and I ought to live as one who has been set free and we ought to be restrained by judgment and mercy. We ought to be restrained. Not to say you could never give in to any desire. Not to say that you could never enjoy anything. That's not what I'm saying. But we ought to be restrained by the word of God and the leading of his Holy Spirit that leads us to love people and to love God. And that ought to guide our steps. And if it's true that a civilization can't even exist when people have unrestrained impulses, it is certainly true that Christians ought to have restrained impulses. God restrains the actions of mankind through love, his spirit, his law, his liberty, his judgment, his mercy, his word. The mercy which he has shown and which he calls all of us to. Christian, do you live in a way that is restrained by God. This is what he calls you to. To the person here who is not a Christian, since the beginning of mankind, God has offered a relationship with him. People often wonder, if there is a God, then why do bad things happen? Well, we know. It's because the unrestrained heart of man. From the sin of Adam and Eve, all the way down to your sin and mine. We've invited sin and death into this world because the wages of sin is death. But God offers a better way. In God's own restraint, he has prolonged judgment. But one day judgment will come. The law that's even in your own heart giving you warning to the reality that you are a sinner and you will one day stand before a holy God. But I just want to tell you on that day, you don't have to stand alone. If you stand with Jesus Christ by giving yourself to him, you can be saved and forgiven of your sins. I invite you to do that this morning. In a second, we're going to have a a moment of prayer, a moment of uh, decision. And and so I'll ask the church to just pray for God to restrain in them whatever needs to be restrained. They can pray in their seat. They can pray up here. But to the person who is not a Christian, then I pray that you hear this message today and you just realize that there is a God out there who loves you and is showing restraint for you right now. And we're going to have this opportunity for you where we'll have pastors at these tables. We call them the Next Steps tables. And if you're ready to give your life to Christ or you just want to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Come up and talk to us. Now those tables are for anyone to go up. If you have any questions, baptism, membership, any, any questions, maybe you just need prayer, those are for you as well. I invite you to that, to come up. If God is stirring something in your heart, come up today. Let's pray.